Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with Delia Delore. On your bike. No, not you. That's what my mother told me when I asked her once, a very long time ago, if I could go out with someone. (laughs) Well, this is what Metaphorically Speaking is all about. It's about those popular terms, quotes and metaphors that we use mostly every day. Sometimes we're not even aware of how often we use them. But using them and understanding where they came from is another thing. And we hope you will join us every week to explore a new metaphor. This week's metaphor is children should be seen and not heard. I know you've heard that many times and probably you found yourself saying it to your children and hearing your children saying it to their children too. Today I'll be speaking with stylist Denise Brown on how the phrase has influenced her life. She grew up under harrowing circumstances and used the phrase to make her stronger. But before I talk to Denise, let's find out where this phrase comes from. Children should be seen and not heard is actually an extremely old English proverb that many of us feel is outdated. Depends on your culture. Well, it does for me. The idiom dates back to the 15th century and was originally used in reference to women. It was quoted then as a maid should be seen but not heard. This form of the phrase was first found in a collection of homilies written by Augustian clergyman John Merck. At this time and place in history, women were commonly regarded as second-class citizens due to biblical narratives formed by the church. Though there are various examples of influential pious ladies in the Holy Text, like Jesus' mother, Mary of Nazareth, the idea of religious female leaders were often contested by various instances of impurity, qualities that were not necessarily lacking from their male counterparts. We may think of Jezebel, her name having become a moniker for overly sexualized and brutish women, or Eve, mother to the original sin. It seemed that for a woman to make her mark in this patriarchal society, she would have to act the part. After reporting some kind of series of holy visions, her fame could come cemented in society. Maybe the most well-known example of this is French heroine Joan of Arc, who indeed became canonized by the church after reporting revelations of various saints. Looking back to Britain, Dame Julian of Norwich, author, mystic and visionary, rose to fame after penning the Revelations of Divine Love. This is the earliest surviving book written by a woman in English. In this text, Dame Julian recorded her near-death experience with a serious illness, After having her last rites read to her, she claimed to have witnessed a series of apparitions from God. She likened the love of God to that of a mother, stating that our saviour is our true mother, whom we are endlessly born and out of whom we shall never come. The idea that God could be a woman was a completely new idea at the time and is certainly an empowering thought, which has cemented Dame Julian of Norwich as an early feminist figure. It is much later on that the proverb a maid should be seen but not heard, turned its focus solely onto children. If we think about a toddler tantrum or the never-ending bickering between two siblings, we could surely think this phrase has some veracity. But there is no denying the impacts that certain youths have had within local and global society. Lewis Braille, a child who could not see, 
pioneered methods of communication within the blind society. I'm sure you knew that. Inspired by night writing, a tactic used by the French army at the time, Braille created a unique code consisting of six dots that could be printed to the size of a fingertip. By the age of 15, he had invented a tactile alphabet, which he then later adapted for both music and mathematics. This system is now widely used by the visually impaired community and has been adapted for use in modern technologies such as mobile phones. The innocence of children can be one of their strongest tools when facing an injustice in the world. It allows for a way to find focus and create a drive to fix the issue. Adults having witnessed at least 18 years of hate, unfairness and bureaucracy become downtrodden by the system. Mounting responsibilities force us to tunnel our visions, forgetting about the bigger picture. And there are plenty of examples of juvenile activists, from the outspoken Malala Yousafzai to the headstrong Greta Thunberg. A child who has already paved the way for future generations was Claudette Colvin, the inspiration for Rosa Parks herself. In 1955, at the age of 15, on a ride home from high school, Colvin was told by the bus driver to give up her seat to a white passenger. She refused, saying that she had paid her fare and it was her constitutional right to sit there. Colvin had been learning about important figures in black American history in school, along with discussing her own experiences with her class. When the news reporters asked me why didn't I get up, I said, uh, history had me glued to the seat. I said it felt as though Harriet Tubman hand were pushing me down on one shoulder and Sojourner Truth hand were pushing me down on another shoulder. And between these two historical women's, iconic women's, I could not move. I was paralyzed in that seat. Colvin was soon arrested by two police officers and remembers once she heard the jail door close behind her, the gravitas of her actions really hit her. The proverb, children should be seen and not heard, is not a phrase that reflects society particularly honestly. With the advent of movies and in turn viral videos, countless clips of amusing children have cemented themselves into our hearts. Whether it be their inability to pronounce words correctly or their innocent shamelessness, the antics of a small human warms many a heart. In fact, the first child star, the singing and dancing Shirley Temple, you know her, right? She was known exactly for this. Her blonde curls and adorable dimples lifted the spirits of many Americans during the Great Depression. Even President Roosevelt stated that, as long as our country has Shirley Temple, we will be all right. Temple's career ended at the age of 22 when she had truly outgrown her cuteness, which shows that sometimes we do really want children only to be seen and heard. a very good reason why I've no one to be gay with that's why I wear a crown no children I can play with London Bridge is falling down because of the cultural attitudes that birthed this phrase many people have had to fight to be heard but demanding representation and breaking glass ceilings is something my guest this week, fashionista Denise Brown, is all too familiar with.
Hi Denise, welcome to Metaphorically Speaking. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thank you. And I'm really excited to talk to you because you are coming from a background and areas that a lot of people are in, in their own way. But the difference is you've managed to turn your life around to be the place you would like it to be at this place and time because things change. You know, you may want to change it at another stage, but right now you seem to be in a really good place. So tell us about uh, Denise Brown. Who are you? Hi guys, I'm Denise Brown. I'm a freelance fashion stylist, a teacher, and I'm a speaker. Okay, and tell us about, oh. <laughs> I know that you say that you're a teacher and I know that you, you motivate uh, people, but what's different about the way that you motivate people because you know there's so many people doing that and you know these days what makes your you know your motivational talks any different from the rest well what makes my motivational talks different is that I mean I have my presentation because I'm originally a fashion stylist so I get to show like my journey from the beginning to the end my story is very it's quite deep so I speak about um because I've come from a troubled background and you know, growing up, my mum was a drug dealer and she taught me how to sell drugs from eight years old. And when I was younger, my dream was either to become a fashion stylist or a drug dealer. So the styling, did, sorry, my dream was actually to become a fashion designer or a drug dealer. So if the de designing didn't work, I was, I was going to be one of the biggest drug dealers like my mum. So, and also I think it's more to do with my personality and how I captivate the people and the audience because with all the images that I've styled and then people you know people they you know they're in awe and they're really amazed by um my story because I've styled like loads of celebrities that you know there's somebody in the crowd that actually knows one of the celebrities that I've styled so that's what makes me unique so I'm not just talking about I'm coming from a travel background it's that I found fashion and it changed my life where a lot of speakers they have this you know they talk about you know they're coming from a travel background, but their whole job is just to motivate others. I mean, my my whole story is to motivate people, but at the same time, teach them what I know, how to become a fashion stylist like myself. How can you remain so positive coming from the background that you are in? Because it's no secret coming from those types of backgrounds, people tend to be really tough and parenting is very was very strict in in those days it's, it's more strict than it yeah. is now so how did you how do you maintain that bubbly personality throughout it all you know it is I think it's just something that that I've got instilled in my family because I'm a brown my auntie's an actress my granddad was a crazy you know bubbly personality he's always had used to have parties every week always celebrating who he is my mother even though she um kind of like failed at a certain time she's always had my mum's got a big personality so it's just something that I've learned like you know had to learn how to hold things in but at the same time you never see it because I'm always smiling so that's something that I've kind of like learned from the child yeah but you know that is a recipe for disaster in terms of depression <laughs> I know it's true did you suffer any of, of that depression anxiety anything like that I actually suffer from anxiety now. It's crazy. I get anxious all the time. So um, what it is, when I'm, if I'm doing something, so if I'm styling someone, I'm like, oh my God, I've got to make sure I've got enough clothes. I've got to make sure that it's right. I can't sleep. Even I have interviews, it's like, oh my gosh, I'll make sure I've got to say something. You know, I've got to say the right things. And depression, I went through depression 
about five, six years ago, and it was for a long time. And I had to end up seeing a counselor because growing up, I was depressed, but because I had fashion, it was like a, it was just like a cover. It was covering up how I felt within, and I started to make clothes from expressing it into creativity. But there was a time when I wasn't okay. About over five years ago, I had a, I had a, a moment when I was like, you know what, I can't cope. So I made a phone call to my mum. She had issues as usual. My friends also had issues. I had to speak to my doctor, and then I started to see a counselor. So I've been getting counselling for over five years. Now, you know, a lot of people, they shun counselling. They think that, you know, you just, for you to do that, it really means that you're not, it's not, in, not even about getting it together. They look at it as a mental unwellness. Mm. Now, I know for a fact that, you know, I have lots of friends with counsellors and I do, I, I myself, I get counselled because I think that we need to have that, that balance, you know, but at the time when you were going through things, did you know exactly what it was that was making you feel that way? Was it a combination of you wanted to have a career that you haven't, or was it just a personal because of the way that you had been brought up? Everything. Do you know what happened to me? So I've, I've, so what happened? I got accustomed from a young child up to adulthood how to deal with problems. I've never, there's never been a time when I've never had problems. So all I'm styling all these celebrities is always issues because my mother became a drug addict when I was young. So I was like 13 and then it's carried all the way through until like maybe about six years ago, she stopped. And so it's just something that I've always used to deal, like I've always dealt with, but it came a moment. Yeah, my career, it was through my career. Um, I want to be a teacher. I was working for this company. I showed them, so basically, I did a pilot for them, how to be um, a fashion designer, because I can sew as well, make clothes for these kids who are neat, who's not in education, unemployed. They took away the course, they made it into their own, they hired another tutor. So they were like, oh, you're not qualified. So I went and I, so I need to pass my qualification. Did the first year, PGCE, got depressed. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't do the work at home. I just couldn't do the work. And at the same time, I was working for this magazine, they were using my name, getting clothes. I'm the fashion editor, but then they are hiring other people to do my job without telling me. And it's just a combination of feeling like, I just felt like, I just felt devalued as a person. So I had the problems with that. Then my, I got a son, he was getting into trouble, going through his crazy moments. So it's like, it just, I just couldn't cope. So that's what, that's how it started off. And then all my childhood came back. Yes, well. you know, all the childhood that you had, you, you got that together as a child, but yet as an adult, mm. when you were on roads to success, instead of saying, you know, saying, okay, I'm, I don't care, you've done this to me, I'm going to show you, it just made you, it just deflated you, you know, from what, from what yes. you're saying, you know, that's how it felt, and, and yet you had such a, you know, a bubbly personality. Yeah, it came to that can you oh, remember the time that you felt, you know what, I need help? You know, was there a, a, specific, a specific moment that you just sat there and you thought, I need help? Yeah, that was the time when I did my teacher's qualification and I just couldn't cope with the work. I couldn't cope the magazine that I was working for. And then the job, all three combinations. And then realizing that my mom's not here for me. I've got no one here for me. I'm, it's like, I'm the mother. I'm always the go-to person. I feel depressed. Let me talk to Denise, like my friends and my mum has always been leaning on me. And then I just thought, you know what? I've had enough. I can't do this no more. 
I need help. Because I, you're right, I, I didn't want to see a counsellor before because I was like, oh my God, I don't want to see no counsellor. What are they going to say to me? They don't know me. Yeah. And I needed a counsellor that I can relate to as well, someone that kind of understands me. But thankfully, I got someone like that. So oh. when I, so it was, it's been, it's been, it's been incredible. It's been one of the best things that I've done in my life as right. well. Getting counselling. Your, your love for fashion. Oh, so I was 11 years old. So my mom's friend used to go to Ghana and she used to bring back these amazing cloths. And I was really into hip hop. I was into like Salt and Pepper, Queen Latifah, you know, Run DMC and Keras One. And Queen Latifah at that time, she was wearing a African gowns, the hats, and then I said, you know what, I'm going to make one of them. So I practiced, I got cardboard, stuck it, put the round bit and I put the fabric over and hand stitched it. And I made um, an African gown and my cousin was going to a hip hop rave in Kilburn, DJ Mark Cross. And he was like, well, he still is, he's really big in the game. And I remember Karen Wheeler, you know, um, what's his name? Back to life. Yes, yeah, so the two. Yes. The, the two dancers, yeah. Dean and Hudson, they were going to be, I was like, oh my God, because I used to fancy them. <laughs> so my cousin invited me and I was like, oh my God. Yeah, I went there and everybody loved my outfit. They couldn't believe someone my age that made that. So my cousin was acting like she's my manager now. But then from <laughs> then, everybody was like, I want you to make me this, I want you to make me that. And then my mom's friends and then my friends. And I started to get a name mm -hmm. from Kilburn, Denise is a fashion designer. And so how do you move from then the fashion designer, the local fashion designer, to dressing celebrities. How did that happen? Do you know what? When I was, because what happened was, when I was really young, I started to um, discover Versace at 13 years old. That's when I saw Naomi Campbell. I was like, who's this beautiful black model? Oh my gosh, she's so gorgeous. And I used to love, because I used to do a lot of gold embellishments and, you know, like jewelry. And I, because I was into, I started to, um, my music started to change. I started to be into bashment at that time. So I used to make a lot of clothes and go out with my friends. But what happened was I always used to think in my head, I'm going to be the next Versace. Nobody could tell me nothing. I'm going to be the Versace. But when I left school with no GCSEs, that's when I realised, because I wanted to get into London College of Fashion, I didn't get in there. But eventually I worked my way up and um, went to London College of Fashion when I was like 21. By then I was a mother, had my son. And then I, when I went to London College of Fashion, it wasn't really for me. I didn't fit in, you need money. To be a fashion designer, you need to do your collections. You need money for fashion week. I didn't have that. I was different from all the students. Young single mother, you know, London College of Fashion's got middle-class, rich people. They don't talk to you, the students. If you're not there one day, no one's not gonna tell you what's happening. Competition is crazy. So I said, you know what? I don't wanna do designing. So. I decided to be a fashion stylist, but I had to start from the bottom. And I sent a gift box to Black Hair and Beauty magazine. That's how I started to get the attention. Cause I thought if I send a, a gift box, then they're gonna think it's a gift. So I sent it to Denise Douglas and then she did the makeovers and went from then on, worked with a stylist called Franklin Akinsetti, Cynthia Lawrence John, one of the biggest black stylists in this country. And I learned from her from the bottom. So I did that for like three years in total. Um, stylist assistant and then I learned to become a fashion stylist. All right so name us some of the people that you have styled. So I've worked with Ed Sheeran, Rihanna, Kanye West, T.I., Tiny Temper, uh, Ashley Waters. Oh wow you're like, fucking up there. <laughs> yeah I've worked with like loads of old school people like you know like mm -hmm. the Noisettes and so I've got like in my portfolio it's a 
I've got a variety of work. So I've, I've got a lot of, um, I do a lot of editorials for like Folk, Folk, Folk Cafe, Style Noir. So I've got like editorials of models of different race and menswear as well. And then I've got the celebrities as well. So it's very, very actually dressing a celebrity. Maybe it's not something that, you know, all you wanted to do was be a fashion stylist and just wanted people to know that you could do these things. But when you're standing in front of someone who you have a, admired or you know you love what they do and you're dressing them can you remember that kind of first time who that, that yeah. person was that you thought oh my gosh <laughs> do you know what I felt like that when I styled um when I styled Rihanna I was like oh my gosh I can't believe it I didn't tell anyone that I was gonna do it because I never tend to do tell people my business I want to do the job then once it's done, then say it. And also Cassie, I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I'm here. But I learned about how to style celebrities because I used to work with a celebrity stylist. So she was doing like Mystique, Samantha Mumba, Macy Gray, Nelly Furtado, um, Alicia Keys. And so I, I started to get used to seeing like people in the building. Like when we did like the Brits, you see Usher, then you see Nelly, you see all these people. It's like, oh my goodness. She's like, Denise, don't you know what I mean? She, did, you, did you ever freak out and, and you couldn't keep it in and went up to someone and said, oh, yes, I really wanted to meet you. When Can I you saw Usher, <laughs> yeah, I saw Usher. I was like, oh my God, Usher, Usher. I take a picture of you. I, take, like, I was so excited and I saw Nelly and Alicia Keys and she pulled me up. She was like, Denise, you can't be, you can't be doing that. You can't be unprofessional. So I got trained. So whenever I saw the celebrity, do you know what? I saw Kelly Rowland mm -hmm. and she invited me and my sister for um, dinner and it was only based on because I styled a band, what's their name? Big Brothers mm -hmm. years ago. And I and I started to custom, I customize them their skirts and then Kelly Rowland was there. She was like, oh my God, I love that skirt. Got a little link. Then she invited me and I, I couldn't believe it. Me and my sister was looking at her like, is this for real? <laughs> but we still had to remain professional. And I made yeah. her a skirt and I gave it to her. Yeah, oh. I to, I've always had to, but I've had loads of them moments when I'm excited. Even when I started TI, I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, he's so good looking. Look at TI. Oh <laughs> so when, you, when you go out and you do your motivational speaking, I'm sure that you touch on some of these things, but you know, what is the, the main gist of your motivation? You know, your motivational speaking? What is it that you want people to come out and understand? I just want them to understand that it doesn't really matter who you are, where you come from. It, you could start from you can start from nothing or you can even start from coming from a troubled background it's how much passion you've got and how much work you are willing to do to become the person that you want to be like so whatever dreams you have because when I used to say to people I'm going to be this people used to look at me like really you ain't going to be nothing because you know your mom's on drugs like your mom's in Kilburn Highwood I'm selling to your mom like I've had times when people didn't want to date me because they knew my mom who my mom was it was crazy so my mom came from being that beautiful stunning drug dealer to becoming you know the opposite and that's what I want to be able to do inspire people that they can be whoever they want to be it doesn't matter wh who you are where you come from it's all about putting in that hardcore work and being motivated and being focused so that's what I want to that's what I want to put out there what's the relationship with your mom like now do you know what it's crazy though at the moment it's always up and down because I've got, it's me and my sister, we're 11 months apart. And then I've got a 27 year old sister and a 19 year old sister. And she's done the same, it's like different generations you've kind of messed up on. So I have to pick up the pieces for my sister, my sisters. And she doesn't know, I just think she's got a problem with knowing how to 
just show it like showing love and she's still on that little kids but must be still not heard because when my sister tries to speak to her like mom I need to speak to you. This is how I'm feeling. She's like, no, 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 you know, like, don't speak to me. Go now, you're wrong. And she's got that very aggressive, um, because she's Jamaican and she was born in Jamaica, but she was raised from her grandma. So she's still got, she's got her grandma in her, because it's not like it's her mum. It's like the older generation. Yeah. So yeah. she's, she doesn't know how to show us that kind of affection up to date. And it's all, it's just that story of she came here at 15, her mother sent her at 15, she didn't know her family, she didn't know her, her mum and her dad. She came in, she's six sisters, and she didn't, she didn't get to know them. And by the time she was 16, she got pregnant. So, and she didn't feel loved from her mum. And then it's gone on to the generation now, because she didn't, she wasn't got shown love, she doesn't know how to show us love. And so that's, I mean, so that's what the problem is, but we're not really, we're not really tired. Yeah, but how do you sorry? Show, how do you show your mom love after everything that you've been, you know, been through? She was responsible for your the way you were brought mm. up. How how does she feel about you talking about her like this? Do you know what? She threatens me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> She's like, I had you talking about me. My friend told me. And then she turns around and says, Denise, why don't you write a book about my life? And I want you to, she wants me to write the book. Mm. And then she would get half. I said, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> she's a character. If you met her, you'd be, yeah. you would love her. She's yeah. crazy. Like she's like so loud and bubbly. She's like, if we went out, when we go out, she's the only one that's dancing in the room. She dresses, she's a wicked dresser. She's petite, like five foot. Mm. She dresses up in her hats, her scarves, her this. She's very well kept, yeah. but, um, I still love, do you know what? I've always loved my mum. You know what my main goal was in life? To do what I'm doing to help my mum. I didn't even, even think about myself. I didn't even think about my son. My main goal in my life is that I need to work hard so I can help my mum. I want to send her to rehab. Do you think stop her, her doing what she was doing? Did, do you not think no. she just enjoyed what she did? You thought that she needed to do it to survive? Do you know what it was? It was crazy because when I was younger, I couldn't see it. It's only since I got counselling, you know, that's mm -hmm. when I started to realise and got to know about who I am and why I was, why I've got bad habits. Because these habits that I've learned from a child, I've brought into my adulthood, I've brought into my relationships. I'm always trying to fix people. Oh, don't worry, I can help you. Friends, everything. And I always will love my mum unconditionally. Like my sister, who's one year younger than me, she's not talking to us. She's not talking to my mum. She's going around talking her thing, her truth. And she's not talking. And my mum doesn't understand. She's like, oh, why is she talking about mum? You know, this is what you've done. You did treat her different from me because she looks like our dad. So she got it more than me. Yeah. And But she's very ignorant. That's the problem. She's ignorant and she doesn't want to sit down and listen. I've got my mum into counselling. I paid for it. I said, mum, I'm going to pay for you six sessions and then we can do like together and we can get a mediator. I don't want no mediator. Do you know what I mean? So she doesn't yes. want to try and heal on that side it's just one of them things she didn't get love so I think I'm not even think I know her whole vision her whole plan in life is that she wants to be loved from a man that's what she's about yeah she's in a situation she's not happy and we've been arguing over that situation and I feel like her mum again because she's phoning me like Denise you know what happened and I'm like do you have any friends yeah you know I don't want to hear this about my mum I want to I want to hear that my because me and her 17 years apart now we're friends now we're not yes. I mean obviously she's my mum but we're like friends I've got friends at her age do you know yeah. what I mean like I can you know we're like mates so I'm like can you talk to me about something else can you why and I say mum why are you like this since I've known you 
you've always been going out the wrong men and you're so beautiful. But I, I would always love my mom, regardless. Mm. If I make money, yes. sorry. No, that's, that's okay. Um, I think I've got a good gist of you know, who you are and, and how you, you were brought up and what you're doing right now. But if we look at society as a whole, mm. we have a responsibility as adults, as parents, to ensure that our young people develop a maturity and maybe ambition is the word I'm looking for, ambition. We have that responsibility because we don't want them to be brought up the way that we were. And when I say we were, I mean most of us, whether we were in abusive, uh, uh, with abusive families or unfortunate happenings, it's different. Life then is different. And now we really do need to come together to Definitely. say that our lives are worth something and that we can achieve the things that we would like to. And we have to find those avenues because there's one thing knowing I want to do this, but you have to be able to know how to access it and then yes. be able to access it when you know where to go. Do you think that our, our support systems in the UK is adequate enough to bring up our children and to bring up even, you know, a you know, 40, 50 year old can say, I actually want to change direction now, especially, you know, with what's been happening with COVID and everything. Mm. A lot of people have been forced to change direction. Would yeah, you definitely. Say that our society has places or is looking out for us? Not really. Do you know what? I mean, if you say us as people, I'm not really, because there's, there's not really, it's always been hard for, for you know, people of our complexion. It's really, but nowadays, the only thing I can say, which is which is great since COVID, is that people are now, now doing more Zoom um, courses. They've got online courses with Udemy, YouTube videos now. A lot of people now are doing YouTube videos. So if a woman who's like in her 40s, 50s say, look, I want to change my career. Because I get, like, when I, when I was teaching how to be a stylist, workshops, events, I got lawyers and doctors <laughs> saying, I want to be a stylist. I'm like, okay. And is it too late? I'm like, no, nothing's too late. For when you're living and you're healthy, you can always turn around and change your career. Um, there is more access online and there is more, people can more put their self out there, but they have to have that confidence to like, if you want to speak about, you know, they can speak about their, I mean, their expertise, whatever they, you know, whatever they do. I mean, sorry, whatever their profession is, or they can learn it, but it's more about just, you know, coming out your comfort zone, looking on YouTube. If there's a specific person that you want to learn from, reaching out to them, say, look, do you offer Zoom classes? Or yeah, going on Udemy, learning new things. But as a, you know, like as a support system, it's still hard. Yeah, because there's not a lot of people, like a lot of us, we're not supporting each other. So that's what, and it's always, and it's always going to be like that for a long time. So how do people reach out to you, Denise? Um, if you can, so my Instagram is Denise Brown Stylist. And I've also, my website will be up and running ending of next month or beginning of December. So it'd be denisebrownstylist.com. My Facebook is Denise Brown Stylist. And my email address is, at the moment, it's um, Denise Brown Stylist, sorry, Denise Brown Fashion Stylist at gmail.com. So I offer, like, I do, I'm going to be doing Zoom meetings. So if you want to learn how to be a stylist or if you want, you know, personal shopping, I can do that on Zoom. I'm also going to be doing, um, what else am I going to be doing? Sorry, my book's coming out in February. Yes, tell <laughs> so us briefly like, about your book. Um, so I've decided, do you know what? I did an event a few years ago 
it was in a hip-hop cafe in Rosden. And then someone said to me, okay, what are you selling? <laughs> and I wasn't selling anything. I just did it so I could boost up my confidence. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what? I need to do like a book guide and teach. So whenever I do an event or if I go and do a talk, I've got a book guide and I can say, look guys, I'm selling this. If you want to learn how to be a stylist. So I put together a book and then it ends, I put together some old, old experience and everything I have. And now it's become a book. So it's just teaching people how to be a stylist in my way. It's got motivation. So it's got like, it's got, you know, like information, like before you become a stylist, number one, you need to know who you are. You need to believe in yourself because in this game, if you don't know who you are, you're going to be, you're going to end up not doing, and not even, you, you might just say, look, I don't want to do this no more. Cause I've had, especially young black females, I've mentored young black females and they've given up. They said, you know what? I don't want to do this. It's too hard because people don't understand that you have to start from the bottom. You might have to work for a stylist that you don't like. She might not say hello. She might just like go over there and go, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I had to do that. Yeah. And so, it's like, it's got real life stories about stuff where I was outside, waiting for two hours for the stylist to come out. Denise, if anyone wants to contact you, how do they do that? So if you can contact me at, my Insta is Denise Brown Stylist and my Facebook is Denise Brown Stylist. Um, if they can email me at denisebrownfashionstylist at gmail.com. Website will be up and running in a couple of months. Well, Denise, all I can say is that you have tremendous tenacity. You are vibrant. You've just kept on going. And I know there's plenty more coming out from you. So thank you so much for being a guest with us. And of course, I wish you and your family all the best. Do idioms shape nations? And if so, how? From social expectations to autonomy and different parenting styles, this week's saying really gives you an insight into perceptions of children around the world. Here in the UK, it seems that most people can recall a time where they were fed this old adage. Listen, you little wiseacre. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big, you're little. I'm right, you're wrong. And there's nothing you can do about it. Things may have changed, of course. These days, our children seem more outspoken than ever, with the likes of super nanny Joe Frost actively giving children a voice. I really wanted to focus now on the lack of communication between Jensi and the two older kids. This is my little technique for this afternoon. It's from the heart. It's really just you getting an insight of your kids' hearts and what they've been feeling and what they've been thinking and, and just having more of an understanding. And I can't stress enough how important it is to keep communication solid. Which, to be honest, is probably what led us to this. Bacon is good for me. But jokes aside, is this idea that children should be seen and not heard is unfortunately still a popular attitude around the world today? Japan is even known for its social cohesion and incredibly well-behaved children who seem to embody the motto despite the fact that there's actually no true equivalent of it in Japanese. For their first two years, a Japanese child is attached to their mother at all times. They spend so much time together, skin to skin, the mother essentially develops the knack for telepathically anticipating her child's every need. It makes sense then that in studies comparing Japanese and Western children, 
Japanese babies have been found to silently wait until their mom figures out what they want, while Western babies will typically cry. So from birth, Japanese children are hardwired to see themselves and their actions as intrinsically linked to others, which aligns with the Japanese mentality to always think of others. But as idealistic as this sounds, there is a flip side. It tends to curtail self-expression, and this is where Japan's manifestation of children should be seen and not heard emerges. The nail that sticks up will be hammered down. In Japan, standing out is usually met with resistance, which links to our metaphor this week because it exists as a manifestation of silencing children to silencing everyone. Here's a snippet from a TED talk by Kanko Moritaka, who relates her experience of being an outspoken child in Japan. Let me talk about my experience where I realized the nail that stuck out is not harmony. When I was an elementary school student in fourth grade, I felt I experienced these ideas for the first time. I was an outspoken student and I could do whatever I wanted. When my teacher asked questions, I always raised hand and I won't answer every question. But I noticed some students started to ignore me and started calling me teacher pet. They told me I'm different from them. You are not my friend, they said. I was shocked. I still had hope because I had friends. But my friends didn't do anything for me. They didn't want to be the next target of bullying. The bullying started spread many people, people, other people to people, and even started spreading many rumors. Eventually, I became very quiet and afraid to speak up. Another way we can look at this proverb is through the metaphorical parent-child relationship that autocratic leaders have with their subjects, the expectation that citizens under a dictatorship should unquestioningly accept unearned authority very much evokes the image of powerless children who are denied the right to self-discovery and expression. On this note, Stalin even said, Ideas are far more powerful than guns. We don't let our people have guns. Why should we let them have ideas? During his dictatorship that lasted over three decades, the people of the Soviet Union were denied access to information and punished for speaking out against his authority, effectively ridding the population of undesirable thoughts as they had no exposure to them, which the USA at the time agreed with. Using heavy restrictions on media and news coverage to communicate to the public that communism was an evil, while also arresting those who identified as communist or even own any literature written by the economist Karl Marx. But enough of that doom and gloom, okay? Let's travel now to a place where the approach to children couldn't be more different. The year is 1945, and a red-haired, freckled young girl with upside-down braids and enough strength to lift a horse is capturing the hearts and minds of Sweden's youth. Pippi Longstockings, for those of you who don't know, is the eponymous character of a Swedish children's book about a young orphaned girl 
who defied societal norms. Pippi is a playful, unpredictable child who loves making fun of unreasonable adults. Her anti-authoritarian nature has caused a lot of debate since her creation and was even censored in France. In post-war France, there was actually a law that stated children's fiction could not depict negative traits like lying and stealing in a positive light. So in Pippi Longstocking's French translation, one third of the story was omitted and the description of her as a strange maladjusted child was changed to describe her as a fine young lady who instead of lifting a horse, lifted a pony. But obviously that's way more realistic, right? Even today, French parents take children should be seen and not heard pretty seriously. Maybe that's why the book never really did take off, even after a more faithful version was released in 1995. It is probably worth mentioning that Sweden is considered one of the best countries in the world to raise a child. It is home to one of the most outspoken 17-year-olds on the planet, Greta Thunberg, and was the first country in the world to ban the corporal punishment of children in 1958. It makes sense then that the Swedish say, children do as you do, not as you say. Sweden's endorsement of outspoken children really makes you wonder if the first time Greta Thunberg ever heard someone say, children should be seen and not heard, was when she was thrust into the international spotlight. During the show, I think we've seen that children should be seen and not heard has been used to silence voices who were brave enough to point out that their current situations could be better. But those in power gained their power using the current systems, so are typically resistant to voices of change. But I think Greta Thunberg said it best. She said, the eyes of all future generations are upon you, and if you fail us, I say we will never forgive you. Speech is how we communicate our ideas to our peers, ideas of power, and I think those who inherit this planet deserve their ideas to be heard. Don't you? Thank you for listening to Metaphorically Speaking with Delia Delore. I really hope that you've had a chance to think about our phrase, children should be seen and not heard, and perhaps remember some of the funny times that it was used for you too. If you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at msdelia at deliadelore.com. Next week's metaphor is, life is a marathon, not a sprint. So let us know your interpretations on our Facebook and Instagram at Metaphorically Speaking with Delia Delore. Until then, I wish you all a wonderful week and above all, please keep safe. Bye for now.